I had the privilege of going to Armenia. Everybody, where's that? It was nowhere near Mobile, okay? <laughs> and uh, it's over east of Turkey. Uh, it shares a border with Iran. Uh, it's a former Soviet Union uh, piece of land. It is the oldest Christian uh, land country, I guess you would say, in the world. 97% Christian. Uh, it is surrounded on both sides, which is quite unusual, by Azerbaijan, which is a country that, that wants to be able to not have to drive across another country <laughs> to be with their own people. But nonetheless, uh, I had the opportunity to minister to evangelists from Moscow, to Armenian church leaders, to apostolic-type figures, to uh, church leaders in Iran and Turkey, and uh, had a wonderful time all while the nation was being invaded. So, and women in the streets of Iran were burning their scars, scarves uh, to the chagrin of the morality police, and uh, hundreds of thousands of Russians were fleeing their own country who did not want to get drafted. So there was a lot going on, to say the least, but it was uh, probably one of the most fruitful experiences I've ever had in ministry, an intensive uh, season of encouragement and training the, the wind-up of which is we are putting together a new evangelism strategy in the Middle East, uh, which I'm proud to be a part of, that ministers specifically the gospel to women, to, uh, a separate way of ministering to youth, and a separate way of ministering to men, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a lot of, a lot of very good things. Well, one of the things I had to do at the end of the trip was sit in a hotel for three days with not much to do, uh, so I watched BBC News, which is the only station in English. So boy, did I get uh, an opportunity to watch the Queen's funeral. I watched it for three days, all three days. And then I got on a plane and was told I didn't have a ticket, but I did get on a plane to come home. All right. The Queen. Now, I don't know how it is you view the Queen I don't know if you see that whole monarchical system, monarchical system as some sort of uh, ceremonial type thing. Yeah, I know it is that. Uh, uh, it can be seen as uh, like a person who doesn't really have a lot of power, but is kind of a figurehead, a, a symbol, a representation of the nation. There's a lot of ways to look at it. You can look at it as a $10 billion tourism industry if you wanted to. You can look at the queen and the family, the royal family, all the palaces in a lot of different ways. But what I began to understand, the best I could from a non-United States perspective, is the woman was loved. And I would say her approval ratings over the years far exceed any leader we've ever had, consistently. So this woman's life meant something to her people, a great deal, frankly. And not only did it mean a lot, it meant a lot because of her devotedness to serve her people her entire life. How many of you have seen the movie King's Speech? Okay, well, she was the eldest little girl of the king who had the speech impediment. She was the, uh, George VI. She was his eldest daughter, Queen Elizabeth. And she, she uh, took her throne, as you know, many years ago. Her consistent presence her consistent steadiness, her love for her country, uh, the longevity of her rule, 
the, I don't know how many, I think 15 prime ministers she counseled. Uh, her humor, though British, leaning more towards that of maybe a Thomas Bates genre. <laughs> Give you some perspective. Made her a very um, appreciated and respected figure among the United Kingdom. That, that we know. So in watching this funeral, I was taken aback by the tens of thousands of floral bouquets that were left throughout England and on the palace lawns. And I really began to get in touch with what, the, what this woman really meant to her own people. They called her the defender of the faith. That's part of her role. We should have that. I guess that's our job here. But it, it, was the, it was the marching, it was the steps that got me. How these people, for mile after mile, kilometer after kilometer, in two different locations, would march in unison in the heat uh, to her final resting place. Uh, people of all different walks of, of, of experience in the military and public service. And, the, and, the, and sometimes all you would hear is the marching, the marching, the marching. And that sort of just stayed with me, even after I got home. And this verse came up in our staff meeting the other day, and it sort of came together for me. It's Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 26. Let's break this down here and maybe... eat it this morning and become more like what we eat, the word of God. We know verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. My memory version is the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. I like that word, meekness, and self-control. Uh, I don't know your spiritual background, your denomination, where you came from, whether it's uh, somewhere between uh, the Puritans and Pentecostalism. I have no idea. But what normally happens is that the Holy Spirit is associated with uh, dunamis, like dynamite, like power, like volume, like um, huge power, uh, public displays of power, outpourings like the Pentecost the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That typically, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, you're, you're talking about something big, something loud, something significant, something historical, like Azusa Street. Nothing wrong with any of that, in my opinion. But there's another part of the Holy Spirit that unfortunately gets neglected, and it's um, overshadowed by uh, the, the stereotypical understanding of the Holy Spirit. And what is that? It's something like meekness. You can tell me about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and uh, Pentecostalism from 1903 onward, and I'll sit and listen to you in fellowship with you all day long about that. But show me the power. I mean the raw power of the Holy Spirit that can keep a man in check with self-control. Show me the Holy Spirit that can keep a man's mouth shut when he wants to just not do nothing but say something in the flesh. That's power. 
Show me the Holy Spirit that will endure suffering, as some of our families are doing. Show me the Holy Spirit that gives us a deep sense of patience. I I don't need a circus without patience. I don't need a a public display without self-control. I want it all, don't you? Okay, so the Holy Spirit gets relegated sometimes as a person. Sometimes people say he's an it, it's not an it, it's a person. As a person, he gets relegated to the public displays uh, and the televangelists of the world. But show me one who's a good steward of their money. Show me one who's got integrity, who's no is no, who's yes is yes, who's honest. There's the Holy Spirit. Show me that fruit of the Spirit. That's power. Like, if you're searching for God's power, read James, the most practical book in the New Testament, the first written epistle, and learn how to keep your tongue in check. That's power. Learn how to listen more than talk. Power. Learn and seize love and compassion. That's power. There's a whole aspect of the Holy Spirit that we talk about but do we activate in our own life that keeps us still and resilient and long-suffering, disciplined? Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit, not maybe, he is all those things outwardly and big and loud, but he's also got a bit of a a British feel to him, reserved. We do well to realize that. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Notice the first one, love. Why love first? Because there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Without love, you're not gonna have much joy. And without love, you're gonna have a peace deficit. I already know, so do you, that without love, we're gonna have fear issues in our life because perfect love casts out fear. Love is first because it's the first thing we need to establish in our earnest, authentic, organic relationship with Christ, love. His love for us, our love for him, once that personal love is established, the Holy Spirit has something to work with. Now I can be joyous. I can love my neighbor because I might have a higher opinion of myself and I can love them like I love myself because I know that I have a worth and a relationship with Christ. If I don't love my neighbor, it's because I have a love deficit. If I'm always bummed out, I have a love deficit. If I'm impatient, I have a love deficit. If I'm harsh, I have a love deficit. Although there's a time for tough love, most of the time it's not. If I'm not gentle, it's a love deficit. So if you want a spiritual formation weekend, it's a great place to have this start. If you really want to take your walk, as I'm trying to do, I'm not trying to go forward with my walk. I don't want to take something that I've had 20 or 35 years in the making, and I don't want to be in charge of my walk anymore. I want to go back, backwards to go forward. I want to go back, and I want to seize more love. I want the simplicity and the zeal of a new believer. I want the the zeal for evangelism that I had when I was a new believer. I want the excitement of the Holy Spirit when I was a new believer. I want more love. That's really what I want. That's really what you want. You want to love more and be loved more and extend more love. 
Because then I can see all these other things. What seemingly seemed unattainable, like unrealistic. We come up with this idea that I have this personality and I have this giftedness and I have this way of life and I have this way of, in my relationships where I operate, and they all set themselves up against the reality of actually experiencing the fruit of the Spirit. We actually disagree with the Spirit sometimes by defining ourselves as we see ourselves. Well, this is my personality, and this is how I operate. This is how I'm wired. This is how I came up. This is how I was taught. That's the way my parents were. Great. Great. Can we go back to love so that we can have more joy and have a peace that transcends all understanding? The real prayer for each and every one of us, the basic primary kindergarten building block foundational prayer is, I need to learn more about love and how to give it away. Because if I do that, then the motivation for my giving is love. The motivation for my obedience is love. Jesus says, you obey me because you love me. If we can get the love thing down, love is more important than faith. You have to have faith in Christ, but listen, love trumps faith. You wanna see people healed physically? We have to love more, not believe more. Faith, open, love, the greatest of these is love. So there it is, love and the fruit of the Spirit. He says, against such things there is no law. I thought that was kind of a, gee, did you have to write that? I mean... Did anyone here need an explanation from Paul writing to a bunch of churches throughout Asia that there's no law against love, joy, peace, long-suffering? Did you need that? Did you really need that statement? At first glance, you say, no, I don't need that statement. I know there's no law against loving people and being happy and joyous and free and peaceful. There's a law against that. Maybe someone needed to hear it, but I didn't need to hear it. I already knew that. Well, don't miss the point, my friend. What legislative body, what parliament, what legislative body anywhere in the world makes a law that contradicts an already existing law? That's what a precedent is. You can change the precedent. You can change a law, but you can't make a law that's a direct contradiction to an existing law. See, that's why he has to make the statement. Love is the law. This is the law of love. Law of the spirit of life, not the law of, of death, of sin and death. Love is the law. Any law that comes after that can't violate love. Can't do it. It, it won't be a, a right law. It, won't even, it wouldn't even get passed. Against love there is no law because love is the law. That's why it's listed first. I'm gonna to get to my marching band here in a minute. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Man, if you had time, that's a big if, and you could sit down with a piece of paper and a pencil and watch your life from childhood, like a video in your head from childhood to today, could you make a list of every decision that you made, every choice that you made that was in the flesh that cost you something big? Like, 
what do I mean? In the flesh means not in the spirit. John the Revelator says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Jesus said to the woman at the well in Samaria, he goes, well, you're gonna, those who are gonna worship me are gonna worship me in spirit and in truth. What's in the spirit mean? In the spirit means you're more conscious and more aware of God and the presence of God and the heart of God and the word of God and the will of God than you are yourself in the flesh. It's worse than that. It could be your own loins, your own flesh, your own organs, your own hormones that can make decisions. It could be your own lust. We can make decisions based on our own flesh. We can make emotional decisions. We can make decisions that are rooted in and established in emotion at the moment. Just, is it possible that some of us made a decision to marry the person you're with today in the flesh? Of course it is. So we make decisions, important decisions sometimes, small decisions other times, let's face it, that we make on sometimes in the flesh based on our own appetites, our physical appetites, based on laziness or evasion or, or, or avoidance or rationalization or uh, too much hope and not enough reality. We make decisions like that. We have to crucify the flesh, he says with its passions and desires. You may have started dating someone long ago because, let's face it, you couldn't stop thinking about them and they were good looking. I mean, some of you started dating in high school. Don't tell me you made all your decisions in the spirit in 10th grade. All right. <laughs> Come on. Are you serious? All right. But you can make a decision in the flesh, right? But you grew and you became friends. Or you met the Lord later in your life. And you began to see what the relationship was really about. There was a physical attraction. There was a friendship. Lust became love. There was a mutual respect, a mutual sharing, a mutual caring. Now some of you are finishing one another's sentences. The problem is sometimes neither one of us can remember it. <laughs> so Paul's making this distinction. There's no law against these things, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. There's no distinction. But you've got to make these things, you've got to pursue these things in the spirit. This is a spiritual thing. Oh, this really gets, this gets confusing. I just need to love more, but we're gonna leave the Holy Spirit out of it. We're gonna, we're gonna rectify our marital issues and our differences, but we're gonna leave God out of it. No, I'm sorry. You're not. We have to crucify the flesh. It's a harsh word there, crucify. We have to die to self. Those of us who really are living under the Lordship of Christ, which is one of our four tracks for next year, someone who's really living under the lordship of Christ is somebody who's willing to die to self. They understand words like humility, sacrifice, selflessness, not selfishness, maturity, seasoning, um, looking not only to their own interests but also to the interest of others. Outwardly focused they live from the inside out, not the outside in. They're not dictated by their flesh and their appetites 
They're not looking for status or approval. They're not manipulators. Living under the Lordship of Christ is, is sort of living in the Spirit. It's living in kind with the person of the Holy Spirit, okay? And he says, those who belong to Christ. We have to, <laughs> we don't like this, but our life is not our own. To live is Christ and to die is gain. God owns you, you belong to him. This is a concept that's really difficult here in the United States of America. In 2022, your life is not your own. You're a slave to all. Now, this is, there's a level of maturity here that you know, we, can, we can grow into, but the, the idea here is, like, you were bought with a price. According to this table down here, you were bought with the blood of Christ, and you belong to him. You exist for him, for his pleasure. I don't know if anybody told you that when you signed up for the gig, but that's really what comes with it. It's inherent to this life that we live is that our life belongs to him. Oh, and everything that we own too, by the way. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And last time I checked, I was in the world, so I belong to him and everything I own. Same for you. He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Does he belong, do you belong to him or does he belong to you? Now, before you answer that, this vacillates. This goes, this, this could be any given day at any given moment. Do you belong to him or does he belong to you? Sometimes God belongs to us. And how is that possible? Because we sort of, in certain scenarios, in certain aspects of our life, in certain compartments of our life, we put them away. Like, we put them aside. We do what we want to do in the way that we want to do it, and then when we leave that context, we pull them back out. Then he belongs to me. Because I decide when he has a say in my life, and he doesn't have a say all the time, just when I have him out, when I don't put him away. So growing in Christ is this juxtaposition between I exist for him to magnify him. My life is about worshiping him and every facet of my life belongs to him, including my own life and my breath. And I'm, he's gonna be like a hobby to me depending on where I am. I might invite him to the party. He might even come to the dinner with me. He might even go on a date with me sometimes, but not always. And near the end of the evening, not really. We'll put him over here and we'll get him in the morning. All right, now that's when God belongs to us. Jeremiah 10 and 23 is an interesting verse. Write this down, look it out. It says, Lord, I, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. So this is where we get into this idea of crucifying the flesh and living in the spirit. And then here it is, here's our verse. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. I'm watching these people on this English television show in some city I've never been before, and they're marching in unison mile after mile, kilometer after kilometer out of respect. And I, I mean, they're not like, they're not missing a beat. Even, if you use your imagination, those who are walking behind the horses. If you get my drift. They have a ministry for that, by the way. Who would sign up for that? 
out of their devotedness to their queen. Who would do that in this room? Who would have the horse behind the horse ministry? It's a very quick ministry because there's only like 25 feet between the back of the horse and the front line, and you gotta get in there and do your ministry and then get off the street because if you don't, someone's gonna misstep. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So how do we define that? How do, how, how do you live by the Spirit? By the way, you, you go to 20 churches this morning, maybe two are talking about this. This is important. Live by the Spirit by definition, one definition would be not to live by the flesh, right? They're, they're, they're black and white, they're, they're contradictory to one another, so... Yeah, not to, not to live by the flesh. A fleshy, a fleshy type um, uh, problem. And if you have a problem in your marriage, or if you have a problem in your relationship with maybe some of your siblings, or in your family, or anybody for that matter, usually what happens is the problem exists because we're operating out of our flesh. And our flesh wants to be justified, wants to be right, wants to be important, doesn't want to be uh, disagreed with, wants to rationalize things, wants to uh, cope, wants to evade, wants to avoid. That's our flesh. If, if, you have, if you have conversations in the spirit, it sounds very, very uh, mystical, but it's not really. Let's put it this way. A lot of the times you come up that hill into this room, a lot of the times we're in the flesh. Once the service begins, we turn our attention to him who, and we start seeking the Lord, start singing, start to worship. I don't know, at some point in the time, we're not in the flesh anymore. We're in the spirit. Like, if you know how to do that in your life to make that transition in a day or even start a day where you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit, now you're really onto something because that's gonna change the way you interact with other people. It's gonna, it's gonna teach you how to overlook an offense Yes, yes, this is a miracle. This actually is in the Bible. It is to your glory to overlook an offense. You can do that. You don't have to engage. You don't have to battle. You don't have to combat. You don't have to disagree. You don't have to start a committee. You don't have to do anything. You can actually, this is amazing, overlook an offense. I don't think anybody's ever done it. I'm just saying it's in the Bible. That's living under the lordship of Christ. You know, if you, if you overlook an offense, you know what happens? You give the other person an opportunity to grow because they just expose themselves for being in the flesh. And our absence of a rhetorical, of a response exposes them for really where they're at. When we come back with the same basic fleshy type response, in an argument, now, we got, now we're both similar. Nobody's different. Aren't, aren't you and I supposed to be different? I, I got some, remember something about being a witness, some, something about the witness of Christ. But you can't overlook an offense. That's something you do when you're in the spirit. When you're in the flesh, now you get in there and battle for yourself. Why? Because your life is your own. You're important. It's important to be right. It's important for them to be wrong. Well, I've got a whole nation doing this for crying out loud. If you don't know what I'm talking about, turn on the news. It's, a, it's a, to your glory to overlook an offense. 
Now, there are other ways to handle things at some point in time, but for the most part in our relationship, it is to your glory to overlook a defense. You might even have an influence on the person. Are you subject to the Lord's kingship or is he subject to yours? I would say there are probably some areas of our life where he is subject to our appetites, our wants, and our desires. Again, we put them aside and bring them out when it's convenient. Since we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit is about the following things. Look at your life and ask yourself about the pace that you're living. The Spirit of God has a pace. It's not the same all the time. Sometimes it's fast. Sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's a standstill. Sometimes it's a sit down. Sometimes it's a get on your face. Sometimes there's no move, physical kinesiology at all. There's no movement at all. It's totally still. Sometimes it's a full out sprint. Do you have a relationship with the Lord that kind of rules over the pace in which you live? Or is the world the Lord of the pace in which you live? Is the tyranny of the urgent the pace in which you live? Is the things that have to be done that shouldn't even be on your list dictate the pace in which you live? Or does the Lord, the Spirit, in the Spirit, there's a pace. There's a, there's a, there's a cadence. And, and it's dictated by him. You see, my wife and I were talking with somebody who works at a, a retail big box place here recently. Uh, two days in a row, I've been talking with her. She's one of the best employees at the place. She has four, count them, four foster children. And the four foster children are all sisters. And she, there's a two-year-old in the same family that she's got her eye on. <laughs> and she wants to adopt them all. And they all want to go to cheerleading camp. <laughs> My wife and I are talking to her, and the day before she goes, I put this account together, you know. You're, don't you have that nonprofit? Yeah. Isn't it the Christian nonprofit? Yeah. She goes, this, you're doing this for the Lord, aren't you? I said, yeah. She goes, you know, I have the Lord too. And I said, I, said, I hope so with all those kids, man. What's her pace? When we interact with her, what's our pace? What is the Spirit of God doing? And who determines how fast or how slow I walk him through my life? You see, we should be thinking about this because the thing that dictates the pace of our life oftentimes shouldn't be dictating the pace of our life. Sometimes it's, well, I'm in retirement. I'm supposed to be slow. Well, your backswing ain't that slow, I can tell you that. What, what, what are we doing? Who's determining the pace of our life? Our ambition? Ambition sounds like a wonderful thing until it's not in step with the Spirit. A vision sounds like a great thing for an organization or a church until it's not in step with the Spirit. There's nothing worse than watching this funeral and see one dude who's walking twice as fast as everyone else and he's busting through everybody's thing and he's, no one can clean the horses when he gets up to him. He's walking too fast. 
or he's walking too slow. What's your pace? See, walking in the Spirit has a pace to it, a speed. When I was going down the mountain the other day, through Sky Valley, and all of the hundred yards of road frontage that they oversee with 12 police officers, and he disagreed that I was going to the same pace of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and he, I was thinking, I better confess this. I was thinking, you know, they only have like 100 yards of jurisdiction. What if I gunned it right now? Would I be out of his jurisdiction? <laughs> was I in the spirit or in the flesh? Is he allowed to chase me into North Carolina, past the state line? I'm asking myself these questions, which I will later ask one of you who's an attorney. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit really checked me. Or, no, wait a minute, that was, well, it could have been. It was my wife. She was sitting next to me. Ah, <laughs> uh, $145 later. He goes, you can go in and handle this at the court. And I thought... I didn't say this, but I just pastored the church right down the road here at Sky Valley. Half the people were elected into that court. I'm paying by mail. <laughs> anyway, what pace are you living? Number two, what direction are you headed in? Those people were lockstep there at the funeral for Queen Elizabeth, and they were headed to her burial site. Every person was going to the same place at the same time, happened to be at the same, at the same pace. What direction are you headed in? I'm quick to bring these kind of questions up often because I don't want you to attend a church that doesn't expect you to have a ministry. I don't want you to attend a church that thinks you're here to glorify this ministry. I'd rather have you have your own. I'd rather two of these, four of these all six ladies or eight ladies, 10 ladies, I'd rather have 25, 50, 75 men at Teen Challenge go out and reach 75 people who are addicted. I'd much rather do that. I, I would expect you to go to Asheville and not too long in the spirit find somebody that you can help because if we don't help somebody else on something that the Lord's helped us to overcome, then we're not preserving his restoration in our own life. I, I hate to disappoint you, but you think you have a lot. You have nothing till you give it away. You have a lot of biblical knowledge. You don't really have it till you give it away because the knowledge of the scripture dictates you do so. You don't really have it. You only think you do. When it's here and not here, you don't have it. When your money is here and not in your heart, it has you. We, we have to really look at this. Walking and living in the spirit yields totally different. Oh, what is it? Love, something about love and joy. I don't know, peace, something after that. I can't remember. Oh, it has something to do with keeping your mouth shut, being meek and gentle and patient and forbearant and suffering. Pace, direction, and season. What season are you in? We've talked about this. Are you in a Kronos season or a Kairos season? Is the season you're in based on your birthday? You could, you could be, uh, okay, in, in three years I'll be, uh, I'll be uh, eligible for uh, Social Security. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I'm, so I get these phone calls now. Ten a day, more or less. 
you can take your Social Security at 62, 65, and you can do it at 70. And I asked myself, am I gonna live to 70? What's going on with that? What, what am I doing here? Then I'm saying to myself, <clears throat> am I gonna let the Social Security office dictate how I'm gonna live my life and the pace and direction and season of life I'm in? You know, there are people that do that. Think about that. Because I'm on Social Security now, and because I'm getting this amount of money, I'm not going to work anymore. Or I'm going to wait until I'm 70, and then I'm going to work. Make all the good financial decisions you want to make in your life. But hold on a second. Last time I checked, and I'm positive of this, of anything I said today, the Social Security office is not the Holy Spirit. What season of life are you in? What is God calling you to do? What specifically are you seeking to accomplish in the spirit? Not apart from him, not in your flesh, not in your own ambition. Paul says, you know, some preach Christ out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. I just got done talking to hundreds of church leaders, I bet half of which in a patriarchal society are trying to overly Bless the patriarch of the ministry, the, the, the patriarchal authority, to grab that person's eye, to get a promotion, to get paid more. It's all ambition. Their ministries won't bear fruit. And if they do, it won't last. Our motivation has to be love, and we have to have seasons of our life that are motivated by love in the spirit. These are questions we've been thinking ourselves. Some of you are in this Cairo season of retirement, whatever that is. We have a family that's in a season of suffering. That's it. You didn't put a clock on it. You didn't anticipate it. You didn't plan for it. It happened. Suffering. We have now, you, you ought to, that's a fruit of the Spirit. You have to have the Spirit. You have to make decisions that are guided by the Holy Spirit for long suffering, res, resolution, resolve, endurance. What season are you in? Are you walking when you should be running? Are you sitting when you should be standing? Are you, are you marching? Are you, are you in step with the Spirit? What is your life doing? Who's dictating the decisions that you make, the values that you have? Please don't tell me it's this world. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Know your season. It's a season to build, a season to nurture your children, a season to, to, to exponentially build something, to, a season to cast bread upon the waters, a season of rest. Whatever it is, the Spirit's got a, 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 a cadence to it. He'll make you lie down in green pastures. Don't make that season of your life all about something very intense. Live by the Spirit. Know your season. The funny thing about it is, if you live in the spirit and I live in the spirit and not in the flesh, and love is our motivator, then you can march twice as fast as I can, but we're still at the same cadence when God looks at us. We're all going at the pace we're supposed to go as individuals. I see on social media sometimes, there's a couple here and they're here today, and they're out uh, uh, in their camper all over the world. I'm jealous. And then I go, I don't know if I'm jealous. 
I don't know if I could live in that square footage, but they seem to be having fun. That's a lot of plastic. I don't know. <laughs> but the views and the vistas, that's their season. Respect that. All right? They're walking by the Spirit. There it is. They're having fun together. They're laughing together. They're loving each other. They're going, praise the Lord. What's yours? What's mine? What's ours? We all should be asking these questions. All comes down to this. These hands and these eyes and this tongue and this mouth and this body, just like yours, isn't yours. It's his. He, when you redeem something, when you take a coupon to the store, remember they used to have, remember the stamps? Let me speak your language. Some of you people are a little older than I am. Remember the green stamps? All right, now I'm really, like we played all these old hymns today. You're, I know you're happy. Listen, remember the S&H stamps? <laughs> when you redeem those stamps, what happens? You give them something that basically is a piece of paper with some sticky stuff on the back that's worthless. In and of itself, you could do nothing with it. Or, as my wife did at CVS the other day, she has a spiritual gift of saving a lot of money at CVS. I don't know, it's a, there's a whole protocol to it. There's a, there's a thing and a, a machine and a list of this. And That's why I'm in the parking lot. You take something of no value whatsoever and you give it to them and they give you something of value. So she comes out and says, we saved $25.50. I felt like saying, well, that's, that's about 12 and a quarter an hour I sat here. That might have been in the flesh. (laughs) Redemption is taking something to no value, giving it to someone, and getting something of value back. Let me ask you something. Just how valuable were you in your sinful state when you came to Christ for redemption? And you presented yourself in your heart, in your life at that altar and said, I accept, I believe, be my Lord. What did he do? He exchanged it for something of great value. But the ownership is his. The ownership is his. If you look on the back of a coupon, it'll tell you it's worth one one thousandth of a penny. Well, that's what they used to say. Now they say, it's one one millionth of a penny. But listen, you can trade it in, and I'll make something of great value of your life. That's redemption. And it doesn't happen without the blood. The blood is the most valuable currency. Divine blood priceless and it's liberally used to purchase those who come to the sun for faith, by faith but the ownership is the Lord's if you didn't hear anything today hear this your life is not your own and to live is Christ and to die is gain he 
He bought us to live in the spirit. He didn't buy us to live in the flesh. We're subject to him as our king. A prince of peace ascended the throne and became the king of kings. We're subject to him. Our body, our flesh, our coming in and our going out, our thoughts, our actions, our lives, our relationships, our possessions, it all comes under him. We're subject to him first. And we best recognize We best remember that today. Do this in remembrance of me. This wafer is the body of Christ, broken for you, broken for me. Man, was it broken. By his stripes, we are healed. Stripes. The only wound that went inside his body and brought what was inside and exposed it to the outside. We can't put him away and play with him when we want to and dictate his involvement in our life because our life belongs to him and he knows what happens inside of our hearts and our minds. He knows our thoughts. He knows our thoughts. We don't have a choice to be subject to him. But being subject to him, my friend, is the most liberating thing we can do. To come under his authority is to be as free as you can possibly be. To stay outside of his authority is to be constricted. We should be compelled only by the love of Christ, not ambition, flesh, desires, or appetites. Oh my goodness. The communicants would come forward, please. We're gonna prepare for Holy Communion. Holy Eucharist. Charis, meaning grace. Eucharist. The word really means thanksgiving. John the Revelator said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Apostle Paul said, we should keep in step with the spirit. Slow down, Lord, those who need slowing down. Speed up those, Lord, who need speeding up. Bring to stillness those, Lord, who need to be still. Make them to lie down in green pastures. Let love be the motivator for our life that we may experience all of the fruit of the Spirit. Those in a season of suffering, gird them up, hold them strong, surround them with the body of Christ, minister to them at their point of need. Whatever season we're in, in this Kairos time of our life, let us walk in the Spirit And even, Lord, overlook an offense. In Jesus' name, minister to people in this altar, Lord. Healing, restoration, inner healing, anointing, and the fruit of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Now, as these, go ahead, ladies and gentlemen.
encourage you to come to the corresponding pair of communicates in front of the section you're sitting in and then return back to your seat. Let's do this today with some sobriety, shall we? Some awe and some reverence. Let's meet with the Lord, your King, your King, and let's stay in step with the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.